President Starr, Provost Garland, Acting Dean Tucker, faculty, staff, students, thank you for the invitation to be here today. It's an honor. We know that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But sometimes the faith becomes sight. And today I see things that I only had faith about at one time. We say in those days we practiced tabernacle religion on the west side of the Brazos. <laughs> there was this great Jordan dividing line called Interstate 35 where we started a seminary in the same place they were also having vacation Bible school. And now you've come across to the temple. I was at Truett when there were two people, a legal pad, and a pencil. <laughs> and how great it is to have worked with colleagues some of whom are still here today, some who are now with the Lord in ways we can only hope of when our faith will be whole someday. And so it's an honor to be here with you. I think about you, I pray for you, and know that the Lord will continue to prosper the work in your life and in your ministry. Now the passage that Dr. Nan read this morning is a passage where Jesus tells people to go places. He had a way of doing that. When he told him to go, it was an admonition. It was an imperative, a command translated with an exclamation mark. He said, for example, if you go to church and bring a gift to the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift, go and be reconciled to him. If someone forces you to go one mile, go two. On one occasion when he was in Capernaum, he had a conversation with a Roman centurion who was an official in an occupying army. He was seeking the healing of his own servant, and he, better than anyone else, comprehended the authority of Jesus. He said, I get this. I have soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And Jesus said, I'm going to tell you something. I haven't found anyone in all of Israel with such great faith. And then Jesus said to him, go, and it will be done just as you believe it would. And then we all know the words, all authority has been given in me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That little word is an attention getter. And it appears here in Matthew chapter 10 in the Sermon on Mission, which is usually overshadowed by the much better known Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus shows us that he is a teacher going places. He is traveling about preaching through the towns and villages, going into the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And while he was going, something moved him, we see the source of the mission of God in Jesus' reaction. It rises to the surface. He looks out on the crowds, harassed and helpless. People being treated like animals with no one to care for them. And the Bible says he had compassion upon them, which is to say he had a heart for them. Jesus had a heart for people. The mission of God does not originate in the sobering revulsion about how bad people are. It's not the product of a pep rally. It's not the justification for an organizational or denominational goal, but it begins in the heart of our Lord 
And when we have a heart for people, we will be on mission. I heard a student say to me once when I was here, I'd like the ministry if it weren't for people. I said the ministry is people. You better ask the Lord to give you a heart for people. And something else moved Jesus. It was a sense of opportunity. So he had a heart for these people, and then he saw enormous potential and opportunity. Jesus looked out and he said, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Low-hanging fruit. This bounty fired the imagination of Jesus. Not everyone would see that in other people, but he voiced a vision of opportunity for the workers of the kingdom of God. And yet he voiced also a dilemma. He said, the harvest is plentiful. There are people out there who need the love of God, but we don't have enough workers. There's so much that I want to give to these people, but there are not enough workers to reap the harvest. The answer seemed to be to recruit more workers to go out into the field. Manual labors for the kingdom of God. People who would roll up their sleeves. And he asked his disciples to pray that more workers would come and help reap the harvest. And then there's an interesting and noticeable shift as we move into chapter 10. While he is praying for more workers to come reap the harvest, instead of waiting for reinforcements to arrive or for the cavalry to charge over the hill, he sends out the few workers he had, only 12 in number, whose names are listed and you heard read this morning. To those to whom he had first said, come and follow, he now says, go and preach. It's almost a strategy change. And Jesus tells us in this that what is needed for the work of the kingdom is not more, but enough. And he sends those few he has. What do they have? They have a heart for people, a burning sense of opportunity, and the power to do what he has asked them to do. These are people who can freely give what they have first freely received. So the effectiveness of the mission of God is not contingent upon large numbers of people, but on the willingness of those who are committed to the mission to freely give what they have first freely received. That's not usually the way that I operate as a chief academic officer of a university. We're always looking for more time and more money and more class schedules and more effort I have to remember that Jesus says it's not about more, it's about enough. For there is a principle at work in life, in the universe, that's also at work in the church. It's the principle of critical mass. In the field of physics, it's the smallest amount of fissile material that's needed to sustain a nuclear reaction. For the life of the church, it means that a small amount of concentrated energy composed of the right substance can produce amazing results against seemingly overwhelming resistance. It's just enough. Tom Wolfe, the writer of the book, The Right Stuff, and the Bonfire of the Vanities, to name a few, in a public interview said one time about our society, The ability of groups to stop things is greater than the power of anybody to get something done. But that's not true in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, when you are on mission, when you are going, as Jesus said, the energy and the commitment of a few are greater than the inertia and apathy of many. If 
Those few freely give what they have first freely received. So it doesn't take much to do the work of going as Jesus has asked us to do. Do you remember the story of Abraham bargaining with God on the eve of the destruction of Sodom? He haggled and finagled and asked God to save the city. He said, God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? God, what if 50 righteous people can be found? Will you spare the city? And God agreed. And then you know the story. What takes place is what I call an inverse auction where the prize goes to the lowest bidder. 45, 35, Abraham bargains God down to 10 people. God agreed to preserve the city if Abraham could introduce 10 righteous people. And of course they could not be found and the city was destroyed. Stated positively, 10 righteous people can have a preserving influence on a city, maybe even a culture and a world. God doesn't require a majority vote or a Christian nation or an army of soldiers just enough who are a preserving presence, one candle to dispel the darkness, one little bit of leaven to bring life to the dough, salt out of the salt shaker. Not a lot, just enough to those who can freely give what they have first freely received. And Jesus sends out these 12, small group who can give what they have received. And we learn two more insights about the mission of God. The energy, the force, the dynamic comes from receiving, not giving. I know that's counterintuitive. It is to me. I have a note here to look at it again because that didn't sound right when it came out of my mouth. The energy, the force, the dynamic comes from receiving. Can you imagine having a stewardship emphasis at your church this fall and telling the people, this year we're not going to talk about giving. We're going to talk about what you're going to receive. It would at least guarantee you're being there one more year. And we think about missions as activism, and of course it is. But there is an aspect to it that is passive and yielding and receiving. And this is the life of faith as we have received it. It's the opposite of anything like merit or privilege. Faith is accepting a gift. Without faith, without receiving, Jesus is only a name. He is a teacher. He is a guru, or he becomes an intriguing historical figure who lived long ago about whom biblical scholars are going to publish their next book, saying he's either a wandering cynic philosopher, a disappointed apocalyptic prophet, a mystic magician, or a nationalized zealot. But by seeing him through faith, Jesus becomes real to us. By receiving, we appropriate, we gain possession of what has been given. It becomes our own and we receive his blessing and power. And best of all, we receive Christ himself. The power for mission is in receiving. Our best teachers on this account are small children. 
They have no problem receiving. There is not a gift that a five-year-old will refuse. Give a five-year-old a birthday present, a Christmas present, a present because it's over 100 degrees in August, anything, and stand back and watch. You will witness a concentrated, unself-conscious explosion of energy that goes into receiving. Children know how to receive, and they show us how to receive graciously and gladly the love of God, which is why on one occasion Jesus took a child and put him in the midst of adults and said, See, this is what you must be like if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Children know how to receive. Maybe your prayer should be at the beginning of this semester. Lord, what would you have me receive from your gracious hand? Remember, it doesn't have to be a lot to make a difference. It could be just a gesture of hospitality from a classmate or a kind word from a church member or a nice compliment. I tell you, there's some days when I can go all week long on one sincere compliment, and I bet you can too. It's about receiving. Dennis said that I'm from Jacksonville, Texas. That's behind the pine curtain. I eventually had to wander out of the piney woods, and when I came out on the prairie, I saw my shadow for the first time. And I was not scared to run back into the woods. I came on and enrolled at Baylor University. In Jacksonville, Texas, I think about everybody there is Baptist except those who've been messed with. <laughs> I had a neighbor, though, who was Episcopalian. It was a very small church in my town. And when she learned that I had made a decision to go into the ministry, she gave me an unusual gift for a Baptist minister. She gave me the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. And that generated an interesting conversation between the two of us. She was quiet and reserved. She knew that Baptists were a busy bunch with their Sunday schools and children's programs and committee meetings and mission trips and revival meetings and conferences. And her life was not as programmed as mine, but her life was centered on worship and prayer and service. And that prayer book that she gave me was a tactful message to someone living in a church in perpetual motion to stay centered in God, to slow down, to be quiet, to still myself, to be open to receiving what God wanted to give. She told me there had been a time when she was a young person, she had almost become a Baptist. And trying to impress her with a little bit of biblical knowledge, I said, well, like King Agrippa in the book of Acts, you were almost persuaded. What kept you from crossing the threshold into glory? She rocked me back on her, my heels when she said, I did not become a Baptist because I did not think I was physically capable of it. <laughs> not more, but enough. You have to receive freely before you give. And then perhaps the hardest admonition of Jesus is you must be willing to be sent. Notice my choice of words, not to go, but to be sent. There are a lot of people in churches who want to go on mission trips. How many people are willing to be sent? For when you are sent, you go at another's bidding and command. 
We read in chapter 10, Jesus giving instructions fairly specific. Dr. Stroop knows that being a good missionary means sometimes you've got to follow instructions. When you are sent somewhere, it's just another aspect of dying to yourself, of living the cruciform life. It means that you have to lose control. And Christians above all people should not fear radical and unsettling changes such as we see today with disruptive technology and shifting social norms and wars and rumors of wars. To be a Christian means that you must lose control so that you can be mastered by someone else. When Jesus forgave Peter and reinstated him after his denial, You remember he asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And after Jesus said, Peter, feed my sheep, he said, Peter, when you were a young man, you went where you wanted. When you were old, someone else will lead you where you don't want to go. And then Jesus said, follow me. Are you you willing to be sent for the sake of the kingdom? Before I came to help start Truett in 1993, a couple of years before, I was a pastor in Louisiana. One June, I attended the annual Methodist Conference of Louisiana in Shreveport. There was a keynote speaker I wanted to hear. I was one of the few, if maybe the only Baptist at the meeting. I sat in the balcony where Baptists are supposed to sit at a Methodist annual conference meeting. Now, if you're a Methodist or you've studied your church history, you'll know that Methodist polity is different than Baptist polity. When Baptists change leaders, they form a pastor search posse to go out and steal a pastor from another congregation. (laughs) Methodists receive an annual appointment. They have this creature called a bishop. The bishop sends you, it's a Hobson's choice. I'm sitting in the balcony to hear the keynote speaker And I'm trying to visualize and to experience the emotions that are flowing through that group of Methodist ministers. Some of them were moving and getting a new assignment. For that, they were grateful. And to be honest, some of the members of their church were probably grateful too. There were some who were staying put, and that was okay, status quo. I know there were people there who were hoping to move and get beyond that little charge that was beneath their time, their talent, and their theological education, but they were staying. So a mixture of delight and dispiritedness. And the speaker that day gave a timely message. He stressed the importance of the willingness to be sent. And in so doing, he referred to the work of the brilliant Renaissance artist, Michelangelo, his frescoes in the Sistine Chapel. And he said to the group, remember, Michelangelo did not get where he was by saying, I don't do ceilings. (laughs) And that, in a nutshell, is the scriptural witness of God's missional people. For Moses did not say, I don't do the wilderness. And Joshua did not say, I don't do walls. And David did not say, I don't do giants. And Mary did not say, I don't do virgin births. And Paul did not say, I don't do Gentiles. And Jesus did not say, I don't do crosses. Are you willing to be sent? 
It might lead you to suffering, to dislocation, to difficulty, even your death. But what do you have to lose? And what will you miss out if you say to God, I just don't do that? Shall we pray? Lord, now give all your blessing and power to these students. May they freely receive what you will freely give them so that you're able to do more than they can ever imagine or think according to your power that is at work within them. We pray this to the glory of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.